Well, good morning, ladies. I'm really excited to be here as we consider the 24th chapter of Acts together. A few months ago, one of my granddaughters asked me to proofread an essay she'd written for her freshman English class. I had the grading rubric, so I knew what to be watching for. It included the usual things, grammar, punctuation, spelling, but the emphasis was on giving a clear thesis statement at the beginning of the paper and then repeating that statement at the end. So based on that rubric, Luke gets an A-plus for the book of Acts. He must have had an excellent writing instructor. I'd like to show you what I mean. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 and verse 6. It says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Luke makes it clear in both his gospel and in the book of Acts that his main theme is the kingdom of God. Now I want you to listen to Acts chapter 28, the very last chapter. Luke closes his account with these words. And he, that is the Apostle Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarter and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So again, Luke's emphasis is crystal clear. He draws our attention to the kingdom of God in both his opening and his closing. And actually, the kingdom of God is one of the main themes in the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. God never leaves his ultimate purposes at the mercy of human uncertainty. It has always been God's intention to dwell with a holy people in a holy land that cannot be contaminated by human sin, and he sovereignly assures that will happen. Of course, we all know that in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's one prohibition. And the results of that choice are still being felt today. But we see the grace, love, and mercy of God displayed almost immediately when he pronounces a curse on the serpent. Even in that curse, the hope of the gospel is presented when Yahweh says to the serpent, Satan himself, Because you have done this, you are more cursed than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is Jesus Christ, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. That statement, ladies, sets God's kingdom plan in motion. Everything in history from that point on is moving not just towards restoring what was lost in Eden, but something even better. God's redeemed people in the new heaven and the new earth, 
in the presence of the Lord where sin cannot enter in. The Bible begins with the promise of God's kingdom, and it ends with the promise of God's kingdom. Revelation 21.3 says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. So no matter what our life circumstances today, there is great hope for the future, for those who are in Christ. It's important for us to have the kingdom of God as our context as we look at Acts 24. This chapter and every other chapter in Acts is far more than simply the, the events that are recorded in it. The events are there and recorded because they are part of God's perfect plan to move toward the time when his people will dwell with him in the kingdom that cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. That reality should drive every one of us to worship. I don't know about you, but some of my most meaningful times of worship happen when I'm seated at the piano, singing and playing to the Lord. Those hymns are saturated in theology. Now, I will tell you, I'm not a singer, and I'm not a very good piano player. But I believe I have a loving Heavenly Father who hears my heart far more than he hears my often feeble attempts to sing or play. I've recently been drawn to the hymn, Blessed Assurance. It was written by a woman named Phoebe Knapp. That name probably isn't familiar to you. But many of us will recognize the name of her friend, Fanny Crosby. One day while Fanny was visiting, Phoebe played a new tune she had written. And she said, Fanny, what do you think it says? And the immediate reply was, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Perhaps like me, you've sometimes wondered how the Apostle Paul endured through so many years of difficulty and suffering as he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe the hymn answers that question. It says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending, bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Actually, if I were to give a title to what I'm sharing this morning, it would be Echoes of Mercy and Whispers of Love. I hope that's what you'll hear as Paul stands trial before governors and kings. The Apostle Paul always had his focus fixed on the coming of the kingdom of God. In this chapter, we see progress toward the restoring of God's kingdom, even in the trials of Paul. His suffering servanthood is an echo of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. There are many, many echoes of the trials of Jesus in the trials of Paul, and they are important echoes. Have you ever noticed how much difference the soundtrack makes when you watch a movie? 
I once saw a documentary that showed clips of iconic movies with no soundtrack. The movie Jaws wasn't nearly as scary. (laughs) And Star Wars just sort of looked like spaceship models kind of meandering in space without that iconic music playing in the background. You lose a lot of the intensity and the importance of a scene if an appropriate soundtrack doesn't support what you're seeing. So I want to suggest this morning that the trials of Jesus are the background music we should hear as we consider Paul's trial before Felix. In fact, it's the soundtrack we should hear each time Paul is on trial before governors and kings. So listen for the echoes. Paul was absolutely confident that everything was moving toward a fixed and sure conclusion. His focus on the coming kingdom of God is what enabled him to stand before rulers and kings and confidently declare the good news of the gospel. It's why, at the end of his life, he could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As we studied our lesson this week, we saw that Governor Felix heard the message of the gospel many times from Paul. And what did he say? Go away. When I find time, I will summon you. He heard Paul again, but he never responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. You see, there was no crown of righteousness for him when he came to the end of his life. Maybe you've heard the gospel many, many times as well, but have never responded. Remember, Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And 2 Corinthians 6.2 urges us, Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is perhaps no chapter in the book of Acts more filled with intrigue and intertwining plots than chapter 24. 25 and 26 give it a run for its money, but as we studied this week, we got to pull back the curtains and watch Paul's masterful defense against totally groundless charges and manage to preach the gospel in the process. In this chapter, as well as in chapters 25 and 26, we meet quite a cast of characters, so I hope the handout was helpful to you in identifying just who those people were. For today, I've divided this chapter into three sections. Verses 1 through 9, the absurd accusations of the elders. And by the way, ladies, these are noted on the back of your lesson. Verses 10 through 21, the righteous response of Paul. And then verses 22 through 27, the folly of Phoenix. As we look at these, I'd like us to consider and focus on three questions. First, who's really on trial? When we think back to Jesus' trial before Pilate, it becomes apparent that Jesus really wasn't the one on trial. Pilate was. The false witnesses were. The chief priests and elders were. And God is the one who was sitting in judgment. In Paul's trial before Felix, who do you think was really on trial? Was it Paul 
I told you to listen for echoes this morning, and here's one. Just as in the trial of Jesus, so here, it's not Paul who's on trial. It's the priest Ananias. It's the elders. It's Felix and Drusilla. The very presence of these important people at this trial tells just how intent the Jewish leadership was on getting rid of Paul. They think Paul is on trial. But in reality, God is sitting in the dock, and all of Paul's accusers are the ones on trial. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. That's what the hymn says. Certainly, we hear echoes of the trials of Jesus. But where are the echoes of mercy and the echoes of love? Well, consider this. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross to atone for our sin, we would be eternally dead in those sins. It was Paul's willingness to be repeatedly beaten and imprisoned that resulted in opportunities for him to preach the gospel, not just to ordinary people, but even to governors and kings. Do you remember Acts 9.15? The Lord said of Paul, Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show you how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Think of how many opportunities the individuals in Acts chapter 24 had to hear the gospel. God's mercy was offered to them. Forgiveness was available, not once, but over and over. And actually, it's more than echoes of mercy. When Christ was crucified, mercy wasn't in the shadows. It was on full display for all to see in the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for sinners. And in the suffering Paul endured to bring the great message of hope in Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles. Whispers of love? Again, it was more than whispers. The love of God was veritably shouted from the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. And Paul shouts out the love God has for Jews and Gentiles when he makes his admission before Felix in verses 14 through 16. There he says, I admit that according to the way I do serve the God of our fathers, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and all that is in the prophets. I have hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. He says, I shouted out while standing among the elders that for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. What greater love can one person show to another than to offer them the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, to warn them of coming judgment that will fix their eternal destiny. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. The chapter is full of them. Second, who's really in control? I appreciated so much Mark Zakevich's definitions of sovereignty and providence a few weeks ago. He said sovereignty is the overall reign of God over everything. Providence is when God's sovereignty touches your life. Because Paul believed and trusted that God is sovereign over all things, including his life, he was able to face each new challenge that God allowed in his life. 
his focus was laser-like. In the immediate, his focus was on spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, but also with a confidence that everything was ordained by God to move toward the restoration of the kingdom where holy God will dwell with his holy people and where righteousness will reign. God was in control of every single detail in Paul's trial before Felix. The third and final question we should focus on is, what is my response to the gospel message for which Jesus died and Paul gave his life? As you know, Felix foolishly procrastinated. Despite multiple opportunities to repent and follow the Lord, he sent Paul away saying, when I find time, I will summon you. On the evening of October 8th, 1871, the renowned evangelist D.L. Moody held his usual evening service. And he closed that service by asking the members of his congregation to evaluate their relationship with Jesus Christ and then to return the following week to make a decision. He thought he would give them time to really think things over. He didn't want to pressure anyone into making a decision they might not stick with. But time was one thing many in his congregation didn't have. Because you see, as they sang the closing chorus of the hymn, the sounds of church bells pealed and fire truck alarms were sounding as the great Chicago fire broke out. Many of his congregation died in that fire. To his dying day, Moody regretted telling his congregation to delay their decision till the following week. In his memory and honor, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'll remind you yet again and caution you that 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Ladies, none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. In fact, we're not even guaranteed the remainder of this day. If you haven't repented and followed Christ, I urge you that now is the time to make that decision. As we look at Paul's defense before Felix, remember that in the first century, religion and politics were deeply entwined and embedded in the social culture. In our culture, there is generally a hard and fast line drawn between religion and politics, but there was no such distinction in Paul's day. So as Christianity continued to spread, the high priests and the elders sensed that they were losing political power and religious power. Governors like Felix had the responsibility of keeping the peace. Wherever Paul went, the message he preached stirred people up. So Paul was a threat to Felix. And ladies, those in power never surrender it readily. We also need to recall the heated exchange that took place between Paul and the high priest Ananias in chapter 23. While Paul was addressing the council, you'll remember that Ananias had some bystanders strike him in the mouth. Do you recall what Paul said to Ananias before he realized who he was speaking with? said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me now to be struck? Well, immediately, bystanders stepped in and let him know that he was speaking to the high priest. And Paul responded, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Well, in spite of Paul's mea culpa, it's not likely that Ananias forgot that stinging rebuke. Paul was a threat to his position of power and influence, and Ananias was very well aware of that fact. Consider the ways that we've seen God's providence touch Paul's life, even in chapter 23. You remember, as Paul traveled to Caesarea, he already knew it wouldn't be his last stop, no matter what the outcome of the trial was before Felix. He knew it because in Acts 23.11, Scripture tells us that the Lord stood at Paul's side and said to him, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Then, didn't you love this? More than 40 Jews hatched a plot against Paul. But what did the Lord do? He allowed Paul's nephew to overhear the plot, and he reported it to Lysias, the commander of the Roman garrison. And as a result, Paul traveled safely to Caesarea with a large military contingent to protect him from any would-be assassins. Ladies, I think the Lord has a sense of humor. Can you picture that? When they arrived in Caesarea... Where was Paul detained? In a dark, dirty cell? No, he was in Governor Felix's official residence. So think about it. All the opposition to Paul resulted in opportunities for him to carry the gospel to places he otherwise would never been allowed. Here's another echo for you. Do you remember Gamaliel's warning to the high priest in Acts chapter 5? They wanted to kill Paul even then, but Gamaliel warned them, If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. They didn't heed that warning, and now they were indeed fighting against God. Because of the opposition, Paul also had free access to this military escort and their commander, Lysias. And once in Caesarea, he had access to those who were served in Felix's very own home. You can be sure that Paul was preaching the gospel of salvation to everyone within earshot. More echoes of mercy and whispers of love. Now let's look at the first nine verses of chapter 24, the absurd accusations of the elders. It says, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us, by your kindness, a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple 
And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before him. By examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to discern the things of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. Now that journey that they took from Jerusalem to Caesarea is about 65 miles, so it would be like walking from our church campus to, let's say, Santa Ana. (laughs) Long way, huh? The group that made that journey for Paul's trial had to work quickly to hire an attorney to get their case together and then make that trip in five days. Commentators generally agree that they were in a hurry to make that trip because they were afraid that Felix might dismiss the case against Paul if they didn't do it fast. So once in Caesarea, Felix agreed to hear the case. A man named Tertullus, who was probably a Hellenistic Jew, was chosen to present the charges to Governor Felix. One commentator calls Tertullus a skilled, top-gun attorney who was considered the best person to represent Ananias and the Sanhedrin against Paul. When I thought about what kind of a man Tertullus was, Psalm 5521 came to mind. In that psalm, David describes his betrayer when he says, "'His speech was smoother than butter.'" but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The cloying speech of Tertullus was likewise smooth and flattering to Felix, but his intent toward Paul was like a drawn sword that came from a wicked heart looking for war. He's like the spider who draws a fly into its web. Oh, please be kind to me. I don't want to weary you with long speeches, most excellent Felix. Smoother than butter, softer than oil. And no sooner did those flattering words fall from his lips than he drew his verbal sword to take what he hoped was his first deadly swing at Paul. The first thing he said was, this man is a real pest. Now that's not a formal charge, but it does show us how much Paul annoyed the Sanhedrin and how much they hated him. The first bona fide charge was the claim that Paul stirred up dissension against Rome among the Jews. Tertullus really hypes up that charge by saying he's stirring up rebellion among all the Jews. He's essentially saying that Paul is a politically dangerous man. With the second swing of his verbal sword, Tertullus calls him a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, we all know that the city of Nazareth didn't have a great reputation. You remember it says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? That accusation was designed to suggest that Paul was the leader of a messianic sect that was troublesome to Israel and therefore to Rome. And Rome, ladies, did not tolerate troublemakers. If the Jewish leaders had been able to substantiate that charge, Paul would have had serious consequences, possibly even death. Well, with a third swing of that sword, this top gun lawyer accused Paul of trying to desecrate the temple. In these three charges, Tertullus claimed that Paul had violated the Roman law, the Jewish law, 
and God's law. But did you notice that Tertullus never really offered any evidence against Paul? In verse 6, he clearly lied when he said they wanted to judge Paul according to their law. Actually, this was nothing but an attempt to gloss over the illegal beating that Paul had received at the hands of the angry mob. In addition, in Acts 21-31, we're clearly told that they were trying to kill Paul. Then in verses 7-9, through Tertullus twisted the facts to suit his purposes. He says that Lysias violently took Paul out of their hands. In fact, it was the Jewish mob that was guilty of violence, and Lysias actually stepped into the scene to quell the riot. Well, with no real evidence to offer, Tertullus and the Jewish mob who joined in the attack against Paul apparently hoped Paul would somehow incriminate himself when he was questioned by Felix. There's a popular saying in the legal profession, never answer a question, never ask a question unless you know how the person is going to answer that question. Tertullus should have thought about that. In verse 10, we begin the section titled, The Righteous Response of Paul. As a Roman citizen, Paul had the right to speak in his own defense, and he had the right to face his accusers. Did you notice that the accusers who were supposed to come never did? The fact that they didn't seriously undermine the case against Paul. Tertullus may, ladies, have been a smooth orator, but he was no match for Paul because Paul was empowered by the Holy Spirit. I wonder what went through the mind of Tertullus when Paul said to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Unlike Tertullus, Paul wasn't flattering Felix. He was merely stating the truth. Felix was the governor of Judea and Samaria when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for preaching the gospel, as we saw in chapter 23. Prior to that, he served under Cumanus, the governor of Samaria. So Felix was very well acquainted with Jewish beliefs as well as their customs. By law, he was obligated to render a fair verdict in Paul's case. So Paul cheerfully makes his defense before this man. And one by one, Paul calmly and clearly refuted every charge against him. The charge of sedition, of stirring up rebellion among the Jews, was absurd on its face. Paul's testimony quickly acquitted him of that charge. He didn't even have time to do the things they were accusing of. His response to heresy I found very interesting. Did you notice that he categorically denied charges one and three? The second charge was heresy. And Paul most assuredly wasn't teaching heresy, but he cleverly used that as an opportunity to tell them what he did believe. So thank you, Tertullus, for providing that opportunity. Paul admitted that he followed the teachings of the way. We know that prior to his conversion, Paul had persecuted people who belonged to the way. That's a designation used of Christians And it was derived from Jesus' description of himself when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what heretical things did the way teach? None. On the contrary, the beliefs of the way 
and thus Paul's beliefs are absolutely orthodox. He served the God of his fathers. He believed everything in accordance with the law and the prophets. His hope was in God and in the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, just as his forefathers did and just as the prophets taught. So he wasn't guilty of violating either Roman law or Jewish law. The third charge leveled against him was tantamount to charging him with blasphemy against God. That charge was as absurd as the first two. Paul had been in the temple to present funds he had raised for the saints in Jerusalem. Pastor John says, far from seeking to stir up strife, Paul had gone to Jerusalem on a humanitarian mission. In verse 20, Paul did create quite a stir among the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he plainly stated, I am on trial today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Believing that was not a crime, not under Jewish law and not under Roman law. Belief in the resurrection from the dead was a theological issue. The Pharisees accepted it. The Sadducees did not. Paul was innocent of all charges, and he refuted each of them. One thing was clear. The charges against Paul didn't belong in a Roman court. You've maybe heard this question asked before. If you were on trial today for your Christian faith, would there be enough evidence to convict you? How about us? Do we live in such a way that we would be convicted as followers of Christ? Paul was innocent of those charges brought against him, but he happily admitted he was guilty of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now let's move to the third division, verses 22 through 27, the folly of Felix. When the late Dr. W.A. Criswell, who was a well-respected preacher and writer, preached these verses, he titled his sermon, Tomorrow is Too Late. And he said these verses contain the most tragic, terrible words in Scripture. So let's look at verses 22 through 27 together. It says, But Paul, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom, and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he often used to send to him and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. The folly of Felix. One of my personal favorite dictionaries is Webster's 1828 Dictionary. It defines folly as Weakness of intellect, imbecility of mind, 
want of understanding. A more modern dictionary defines folly as a lack of good sense or moral prudence and foresight. Today, we would probably refer to such a person as a fool, and Scripture has a lot to say about the fool. Proverbs fourteen sixteen: a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. Proverbs 15, 1, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. And Proverbs 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. By definition, Felix was a fool. Anyone who would trade eternal salvation and eternal reward for popularity with a group of people can only be described as a fool. According to verse 22, Felix had a good understanding of the way possibly because his wife was a Jewess. He knew that Christians posed no threat to Rome. He specifically sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. So he didn't lack knowledge. He'd heard the gospel. He'd heard there was a coming resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Romans 1, 18 and 19 warns, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards said, Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotting cover. And ladies, that's exactly where Felix was standing when he said, go away. And when I find time, I will summon you. Anyone who thinks they can wait to repent and turn to God is standing on a rotting cover over the pit of hell because none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. James 4 verses 13 through 15 says, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Those verses are particularly relevant to Felix and to those who are like him. He procrastinated for two reasons. He didn't like the message Paul was preaching because it frightened him. And it frightened him because he spoke directly into Felix's life and his sin, and it shined the truth of the gospel on his heart. Paul spoke of righteousness. Felix had none. He was a cruel, licentious, and base man. Paul spoke of self-control. Felix didn't have any of that either. Drusilla had been married to another man when Felix saw what he wanted and took her. And finally, Paul spoke about judgment to come. Even at my age, and maybe especially at my age, it amazes me what lengths people will go to not 
to think about judgment to come. Clearly, Felix didn't want to think about judgment, so he sent Paul away. And he made excuses and told him, when I find time, I'll summon you. Someone once said, procrastination is the grave in which opportunity is buried. The second reason Paul procrastinated was because he was hoping to line his pockets. Taking a bride was a violation of Jewish law, but that certainly didn't seem to bother Felix. He sent for Paul often and talked to him often. Now, is there any question in your mind about what Paul's side of the conversation was? There's not in mine. I have no doubt that he did what Paul always did. He preached the gospel. More echoes of mercy and whispers of love. Grace upon grace was extended to Felix and Drusilla through multiple exposures to the gospel. Paul gave them opportunities to repent and be saved, but Felix simply wasn't interested. He was more interested in the possibility of receiving a bribe. There's an old adage that says, you can run, but you can't hide. And that's true with God. We will either face him as his beloved child whose sins have been removed, or we will face him as a righteous judge. If you're a believer this morning, I hope you're encouraged. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you haven't repented of your sins, Scripture compels me to warn you yet again. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Felix had many opportunities to turn to Christ, yet he continued to stand on that rotting cover over the pit of hell. But that cover eventually gives way, and when it does, the opportunity to be cleansed from sin and made right with God is gone. But you know, God's mercy and love don't have to be just an echo or a whisper. They can be a reality today if you accept his offer of salvation on the basis of grace through faith. Again, ladies, be encouraged because no matter what is going on in your life or what is going on in our country, God is sovereign over all of it. He's in control of every detail. It's been said that crisis creates opportunity. I'm sure you've noticed today that people today are unsettled, And they're frightened. When we behave with faith and hope, I think people notice. We have an opportunity to model gospel living. Our faith and our hope, or our lack of faith and hope, are on full display in these days. So do others see us as anxious or assured? Do they see us as fearful or faithful? Are we telling them the world isn't falling apart? It's just falling into place. God's kingdom plan is moving forward, and we get to be part of that. So listen for the echoes of mercy and whispers of love in your own life, and thank him for his providential care and leading in your life. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now capture my sight. 
Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the days long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let's pray, ladies. Father, may this be the testimony of our hearts today. Thank you for saving us, and thank you for all the ways you demonstrate your love to us. Oh, Lord, help us not to be so caught up in the cares of this world that we miss the echoes of your mercy and whispers of your love. Help us to share the hope we have in Christ for your glory. In Christ's matchless name, amen.